Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Nearly two out of every three people will have to work beyond their planned retirement age. So what does this mean for your pension planning? Corporate bond funds still offer attractive yields, but can they also grow your capital? And the 95% mortgage is back, backed by the bank of mum and dad. All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Charlene Goff. Hello. Alice Ross. Hello. And our special studio guest, Richard Woolnow, Corporate Bond Fund Manager at M&G. Hello. So let's start with retirement planning. Research published this week by MetLife has revealed that 54% of people now think their pensions will fall short of expectations and are worried about their retirement income. And a survey to be published on Tuesday by Age Concern and Help the Aged is set to reveal that 60% of people now believe they'll need to work longer than originally planned due to the effects of the recession on their pensions. Pension providers also report high volumes of inquiries about deferring pension income. Alice, this is clearly now a growing problem, and we've discussed one solution, working for longer, uh, on the FT Money show before. But what are the pension planning solutions available to people? Well, people can basically take part of their pension and leave the rest of their pension where it is. So when they move their pension into uh, drawdown, they can take 25% of it as a tax-free cash lump sum. Now, if you are thinking about um, not retiring completely, but say working part-time, if your employer will allow you, or maybe if you're self-employed, so working two or three days a week, what you can do is move some of your pension into this, take the 25% um, tax-free cash and use that to supplement your income. And how exactly do you do you go about it? Do you need to take the pension that you have and move it into some sort of phased scheme? Or is it simply a case of just taking a little chunk of your existing pension at a time? You can do either. You can move the whole thing. I mean, it, they, they describe it as switching it on or switching it off. So you basically kind of give it pension status or not. Um, but you can do that with your entire pension pot or you can just do it one little bit at a time. You can just move a segment in. And But the good thing about that is that each time you move one part of your pension in, you can always take 25% of that part. So you could keep moving in, you know, 20 grand chunks or whatever and always and then always take a five grand tax-free cash out, you know, to top up your income. And that's the great advantage, I suppose. The, the, the quarter of each segment that you take is completely free of tax. 
each time you do it. Exactly. And the good thing about that is that if you were on the cusp of being a basic rate to a higher rate taxpayer, um, you could use the tax-free cash as your income, but you obviously wouldn't have to pay any tax on it, so it would stop you paying higher rate tax. Now, we're talking about um, personal pensions here. Um, I suppose you can have a sort of DIY phased retirement if you've got a small personal pension in one place, a small occupational scheme in another place. If you've got lots of different schemes, you could sort of take one at a time gradually. Yeah, you could do that as well. That's another option because, uh, as we know, people are moving jobs and careers so much more these days that they often do have various different pension pots scattered around different employers. So they could just, you know, one option is to consolidate them all and put them all in one place. And that's much easier in terms of um, just purely for administration, seeing where your pension is, that's much easier. But it might not be necessary to do that if you're just going to take one at a time, if you're doing this phased retirement thing. But if, say, um, you've worked for the same company all your working life and you're one of those lucky people who managed to get into a final salary scheme and that's your only pension, um, can you still do phased retirement? No, that's the only option where it's probably not possible. I mean, it, people say it's probably almost impossible. You can always check with your um, with your employer and see if it is possible. But generally speaking, if you're in a final salary scheme, you're either retired or you're not. And very quickly, are there any particular types of pension where it's not a good idea to take phased retirement, where where you may have an annuity rate that depends on going age 65? Yes, in fact, some schemes, uh, this is a slightly older thing, it was in the 80s mostly, but some schemes have these guaranteed annuity rates at a certain age, so it might kick in at age 60, and you have to retire at age 60, and then you get this guaranteed annuity, which might be higher than you would get if you didn't retire at 60 and started taking the income at 61. Um, so it's worth definitely checking that with your with your pension provider. Good advice there. Thanks very much, uh, Alice. And to find out more about planning for phased retirement and getting a higher annuity income, look out for the articles by Alice and Joe Cumbo in FT Money with a Weekend FT. Remember that you can also send in your pensions and investment questions to be answered by experts. Just email us at the address money at ft.com. Still to come, the return of the 95% mortgage with apron strings attached. But first, corporate bonds. The improved sentiment in financial markets hasn't only lifted share prices. Investment-grade corporate bonds have also rallied. Research from one investment advice firm shows that from the beginning of the year to March 25th, only two out of 85 investment-grade corporate bond funds made any money. But from March 25th to the end of April, all but five of those 85 funds did make money, some even in double-digit percentages. That led me to suggest last week that the potential for further capital gains could be estimated by comparing the average price of bonds in a fund with their redemption value of 100 pence. But not exactly, said Richard Woolnow of M&G, so given that he is one of the managers who has made money all year, we've invited him in to explain. Um, Richard, how then should private investors assess the potential for capital uplift from a corporate bond fund? Whenever you buy a corporate bond fund, you're buying two elements of risk and two ways you can get a positive return. One is to do with inflation and duration, which is underlying risk of of lending money for a long time. You want inflation to be low, not inflation to be high, to generate capital gains. And the second element is via the credit risk you take, as opposed to lending to the government, which is 
traditionally risk-free. If you're lending to a corporate, you take risk. And the more risk you take, the more you get paid. So it's a combination of the, of the credit risk you take and the duration risk will provide your, your total capital gain or loss if a uh, market's weak. And the risk we're talking about, of course, is the risk of default, the, you know, the, the risk of the company not repaying uh, uh, the bond at its, uh, at its full price. And I think in the article I wrote last week, I was saying that if the average price of bonds in a fund is, say, 73p, but they are all going to uh, mature and you'll get 100p back, that's scope for capital uplift. But it's the default rate, isn't it, that you have to factor in as well? I think uh, it is a mixture of these. By definition, uh, the potential for capital gain is enormous when you have a security that's low-priced. Uh, and we, as, uh, as fund managers, have bought more low-priced securities over the last two or three months than we have done before. But we're very selective in what we choose. We're looking for assets with that potential to return their capital, uh, to pay the money back, uh, and uh, trying to avoid those that, even though they are low price, will continue to deteriorate as credits. So there are many opportunities out there. There are many you know, cheap assets. There have been many forced sellers in this marketplace. And it's a question of working with your credit team and your analysts to choose the uh, bonds that are below par, where you've got a good chance of getting back to par and good recovery, and avoiding those that continue to struggle and then default. I think it's also important to think about a separate issue. Just because a bond defaults doesn't mean it's the end of the world. You have to look at what you get back when it goes wrong. So when you're investing in a company, it's not just a question of what's the probability of default, but when it defaults, what legal rights do I have? And how much money will I go get back? How many pence in the pan will I get back as a creditor? And therefore, don't just focus on the price of a bond, focus on the underlying business uh, potential within that company and then focus on what your rights are if it does go wrong. And how do you as a fund manager go about doing that? I mean, what are the factors that, that, that you look at which you know, determine uh, how comfortable you are that you are going to get enough money back from a bond? We're very fortunate. We work with uh, a very strong, experienced credit team, uh, people who've been through cycles before people who are used to looking at distressed credits and difficult credits. So that team will vary from specialists in terms of industry specialists and company specialists, and also to the extent we employ and uh, we have uh, uh, members of staff who look at restructuring of credits. And so as opposed to, uh, let's say, a less um, uh, supported, a less well-resourced or well-resourced organisation, uh, we have the resources to... Uh, monitor companies before they get into default and when they do approach default to get into default we work closely as a creditor with them to make sure that uh, we are able to enforce our legal rights and the company is in a good position to survive and prosper. And I suppose the um, crucial distinction that uh, listeners need to be aware of uh, is that between investment grade corporate bonds and so-called high yielders. Now, this is something that isn't always necessarily made clear. I can't think of that many bond funds that necessarily use the same definition. This makes it very difficult for investors. Um, Can you uh, clarify this? I think it's good to take a step back and and go back to what the rating agencies call these two particular bonds. Uh, Investment-grade bonds are designed to survive the cycle. Their term for non-investment-grade bonds is speculative-grade. In a bull market, they're termed high yield. In a, bull, in a bear market, they're termed junk. So the difference between investment grade 
and sub-investment grade, high yield or junk, whatever you want to call it, is that investment grade companies are designed to survive an economic downturn, to survive an economic cycle and bad business decisions. Whereas high yield, some investment grade bonds, it's hard for them to survive bad management decisions, changes in their marketplace and a downturn in the economic cycle. So just finally, how would you classify uh, a corporate bond issued by a UK bank? Very good question. Uh, one, which is the bank? It's very important. Is Let's it systematically it's important or is it not systematically important? Secondly, you then look through where you've lent to the bank. Are you lending on a senior basis, a subordinated basis or a junior basis? And then you have to work with your analyst and you say, uh, you know, looking at RBS, what part of your RBS have you lent to? Group, treasury, holding company. It's not a simple matter. If you find a typical RBS bond, then you have to look and, and, and believe what level of government support exists. If you believe it is systematically important that government support is there for your class you're invested in, it becomes investment grade-ish. If you don't, then it gets rated some investment grade. And this is reflected by the rating agencies. There is a split opinion on that kind of credit, and some rating agencies believe it's investment grade and it will be supported, and other rating agencies think it is not. And therefore, it is very much a subjective judgment. So you have to trust your fund manager uh, quite clearly. Thanks very much uh, for that, Richard. And to check out the recent performance of corporate bond funds, including Richard's, have a look through the managed funds listings in FT Money this weekend or go online to ft.com forward slash funds. And finally today, the return of the 95% mortgage. Um, Charlene, it's it's over a year uh, since... Uh, home buyers who only had a 5% deposit uh, could get a mortgage at a competitive interest rate. Um, so who has now brought back the competitive 95% deal? Well, it's a new deal that's been launched this week, and it's by Lloyd's Banking Groups, one of the government-backed lenders. Uh, the government has been pushing lenders to start offering better mortgages for first-time buyers, and, and this one is particularly aimed at those buyers. And as you say, it offers to lend up to 95% of a property's value. There are a few catches, though. Uh, they have to put down, or the buyer would have to put down 5% of the value in cash, but their parents would have to have a further 20% of the property value in cash in a Lloyd's savings account. And although they wouldn't actually have to give up that money and put it into the property their child was buying, they would have to almost relinquish the right to that money. And if their child did fail to keep up with their mortgage payments and had their house repossessed, then Lloyds would be able to draw on that money. Um, so it is backed by parents, even though they don't actually have to sort of write a cheque to their child for the money. So you still need uh, wealthy well, relatively wealthy and understanding parents. So they put the 20% of the property value into this into a Lloyd's savings account where it well, must remain for the duration of the mortgage or as long as the child is living in the property? Well, it actually has to remain there for the first three years. The mortgage is a three-year fixed rate. So they would keep that. They would keep a legal charge over that money for the three years. That could become... That could be longer than three years if the equity in the property has not increased in that time. So what Lloyds have said is that if 
the uh, property value has gone up or the child has been making repayments and managed to build up a 10% equity cushion in, in the property, then they will remove the legal charge uh, from the parent's money. Otherwise, it will remain there until they have that 10% cushion. So it, it's quite a good deal. I think mortgage brokers uh, have felt that it is workable. Other lenders could do similar things. There are a couple of other deals in, in the market that are aimed at uh, buyers with parental backing, uh, the guarantor mortgages, but they typically require the parent's name on the mortgage. So it's actually the parent's responsibility to keep up the mortgage repayments if the child defaults. So this doesn't have anything like that. Um, so maybe it's a bit more flexible. The parents can continue to earn interest on their savings as well. Um, and also it, it's got the advantage of a quite attractive rate. The uh, the mortgage has a rate of 4.39%, which is pretty good um, and significantly better than other deals aimed at borrowers with, with small deposits. I think alternative rates are sort of closer to 7%, definitely higher than 6 and typically require a 10% deposit at least. So it's quite a good deal. I suppose that, that's the big difference, isn't it? Uh, acting as a as a guarantor to a child's mortgage is possibly easier than going this route, but you just can't get a 95% mortgage affordably any other way. No, you really can't. I mean, we might see things start to improve. A couple of lenders have increased their loan-to-value um, on some deals. I think Abbey, for example, had reserved a number of its best rates for borrowers with 40% in the way of deposit and last week said, oh, actually, borrowers with 30% can take some of those deals. So we're seeing a bit more flexibility, but at the riskier end, so the sort of 90s, 95%, they're still incredibly scarce in the market. So this one could prove quite popular. So if you're looking to get onto the housing ladder, it's time to have a conversation with your parents. Um, thanks very much for that, Charlene. And uh, you can make up your own mind about the wisdom of a 95% mortgage uh, in terms of what's going to happen to house prices by reading our housing market debate in FT Money this weekend, in which Merrin Somerset Webb goes head-to-head -head with Richard Donnell of HomeTrack. But that's all we have time for uh, for this FT Money Show. Remember, you can read the latest news every weekday on our website, ft.com forward slash money. And you can send in your questions and your comments on the show to our email address, money at ft.com. We'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Alice, Charlene and Richard Wilmo of M&G. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget? Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.